0: Hi, welcome to North Church tonight. Uh, We are in Mark chapter 7, installment number 17. This is Images of Jesus, part 17. We'll read the first 23 verses of the 7th chapter of Mark. Uh, Before we get there, I want to remind everybody the theme and the thought of, of this series, Images of Jesus. This is a collection of a collage of pictures of Images of Jesus, designed to let us know and and see what Jesus was about. Mark is writing his gospel to the Roman Christians and a lot happening in the area of Rome around this time. Uh, But more importantly, especially for tonight's message, is for us to understand that these are images, snapshots of the life of Jesus. It's like we're walking through a Jesus museum. And here, uh, it's it's a, a piece of the the museum, a wing of the museum, if you will, where Jesus is talking about being defiled and Jesus encounters scribes and Pharisees. And I'll refer to them a lot tonight as as lawyers as we walk through this uh, tonight. So these are our lawyers who, whose job was sort of to defend the law. And more than that, you'll see this word tradition a lot tonight, and I'll talk about that in a second uh, this tradition that these Pharisees, lawyers, these scribes had that had become higher than the law. And we'll talk about that as we go along tonight. But the first thing I want to bring us to the understanding of is this ferocity of love, the ferocity of love. And let that that phrase sink in in your mind a little bit, the ferocity of love. Uh, basically what's happening here is Jesus has poured life into these disciples and created and and done a lot in the life of disciples and and just people that are following him in general. And sometimes we want to clarify that word disciples. Uh, When we're hearing a a sermon and we see or hear this word disciples, we think of the 12 disciples, Peter, James, John, Matthew, and etc. But uh, here we're not talking about just those 12 guys, but we're also talking about Uh, those who had given their lives to the teaching and to the way of life of Jesus. So all these people, his kids, if you will, the ones that Jesus poured his life into, now these religious leaders, these lawyers are coming and imposing more on these children of God than the word of God actually does. And so Jesus, a lot of times if we, we grew up in a Christian home, we see these images of Jesus, this picture of Christ. Uh, maybe holding a little lamb and he 's wearing a white robe and uh, he 's got real long and soft hair and uh, uses a lot of conditioner in his hair and he 's very pretty uh, or maybe we've we 've got him sitting down on a on a stool of some kind talking to a bunch of children and either way it's it 's a very effeminate looking jesus but what 's happening here in the story that we 're going to see Jesus uses some Some very harsh, some very in-your-face language to these guys. And uh, he is very, very ferocious. And I'm reminded of uh, a movie called Taken. Uh, Liam Neeson gets this phone call and he says, I don't have money. If if it's a ransom that you're seeking, uh, then you're not going to find it here. I don't have much money. But what I do have are a very special set of skills and I will use those skills to track you down, to hunt you, and find you, and kill you. If you don't give me my daughter, that's what's in store for you. And it's a very ferocious, very, very in-your-face conversation that, that this father has with this guy who's kidnapped his daughter. But the, the, the thing that I want to connect with, it's that Jesus that we encounter here, that image of Jesus that we see. If you've seen that movie, he's a bad dude in this movie. He... Just a very aggressive and and very uh, ferocious in his desire to get his daughter back. And what's happening here, the same deal. His kids have been lied to. His kids have been taken. And what we can take from this passage above it all is that we have a God. We have a father who is ferocious and his love is strong. His love is powerful. And he is coming to get us. Jesus is here. He's coming into the world and he is in confrontation with those who are telling lies and harming his kids, and he's very aggressive with it. it. This is not a limp-wristed Jesus. It's a forthright and aggressive Jesus who's very uh, aggressive and direct towards these people. And he's not talking about these lawyers, these Pharisees. He's talking to them. Uh, The overriding theme, he is coming for you. I spoke a minute ago that we would use and see the word tradition. It shows up many times in the passage tonight. Uh... But when we see it, I don't want you to see tradition as far as uh, maybe a tradition in, in an established church that you have, and uh, maybe we're, we're counter to the tradition because I'm wearing shorts and flip flops tonight, and, and you're all wearing flip flops, and it's it's a different style of church. And so, so tradition here don't hear style or don't hear your grandmother's church when we see tradition. Tradition is is more of a of a proper noun. That is a set of laws that were given by these lawyers in order that we not break the ultimate laws, which are, which are God's laws. But the problem is, is that these tradition, what would later be referred to as the Mishnah, a bunch of laws, a bunch of laws on top of laws, fences upon fences upon fences, designed to keep you from harming the real law. But this tradition, this Mishnah had been listed or, or lifted up higher than the actual law of God. So that's the, the, the thought behind tradition. Uh, one of the commentators that I use to study this chapter is uh, a guy named Kent Hughes. And he says this, tradition or Mishnah, as the Jews saw it, protected God's holy word and assisted people in keeping it. My street is not a really busy street, but a lot of people cut through my street in order to avoid lights around rush hour time, avoid traffic, and so you'll see cars driving up and down my street at 40, 50 miles an hour uh, around rush hour to try and avoid a red light. And so there's a a strip of grass that sits between my sidewalk and the, the driveway, and so anytime my kids are out there, I tell them not to go past the sidewalk, so I have this strip of grass is sort of a buffer zone before they can get out in the street where they could be hit or killed by a, a vehicle. And so this, this strip of grass that's between my sidewalk and my, my, the street in front of my yard is a fence. The same sort of premise where I say, my kids, don't go past this strip of grass so you don't go out into the street. It's a buffer. It's a fence to protect them. And these lawyers, these Pharisees, these scribes have created this tradition Uh, which now has taken on a life of its own and gone beyond uh, beyond them. So let's get into this passage. The first three verses, we'll talk about those real quick. Uh, It says in verse 1, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that are defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of of the elders there's our word tradition of the elders and the tradition of the elders is is this in exodus chapter 30 verse 17 it says this the lord said to moses you shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing you shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar and you shall put water in it with which aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and feet some background you need to have for this For this passage, Aaron and his sons were the priests. They were the ones who who were designed to bring the word of God to the people. And they would go into this tent of meeting, their church service, and somewhere between where their church met and the altar, which was where only the priests could go, was this basin, this bronze basin, where Aaron and his sons, the other priests, would wash their hands and wash their feet ceremonially to be clean so that they could stand in the presence of God. But this command here... In, Mar- in Exodus chapter 30, is designed for the priest. So this was this command is placed on the priest and nobody else. The tradition that these knuckleheads, these lawyers made it, was that everybody would have to wash their hands and feet before they ate. And it's not something that is uh, a, a germ thing or a cleanliness thing. It is a ceremonial thing. They all had to wash their hands ceremoniously so that nothing defiled could enter in to their body and we'll get to, to more of that as, as we go the, the, nothing would enter into their bodies that was defiled and Jesus will talk about the defiling doesn't come from the outside of you it comes from the inside of you but that's for, for later on but this is the, the heart of the passage the law that they did not want to break so they put a fence around it they made a tradition that you had to wash your hands everybody had to wash their hands before they ate so nothing could defile them and, and again not just for germs uh Continuing on, verse 4. And when they came into the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions, there's our tradition word again, that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. All of these things are traditions, meaning fences set aside so that they wouldn't break the commandment that we talked about in Exodus 30, which is the priests have to wash their hands before they handle the altar of God. But they imposed this tradition in a bigger way and on people that it wasn't even meant to, to be on. It was just for the priests and it was just when they were dealing with the altar. It had nothing to do with food. It had nothing to do with people who were not priests. It's these, these are traditions. These are bigger fences that were happening, buffers that were there in order that we not uh, break a law. Very similar to, to a guy. If a guy struggles with lust, one of the things that they want to do is, is not put anything inappropriate in front of their eyes. They're not watching Cinemax. They're not watching uh, movies that are going to make their minds lust. They're placing fences around. There's nothing inherently wrong with a particular movie, but sometimes there can be women in this movie that bring lust to to a man. And so in order to not lust, you don't place yourself around opportunities where you might lust. I know, I know a guy who, who doesn't go to swimming pools because... Uh, looking at all the girls around him can, can create lust in his heart. And so that's a fence that he's placed for himself. The error happens when we place these fences on people who it was not meant to be placed on. That's what Jesus will, will come for here in just a minute. Verse 5, And the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Basically, they're saying, Why don't your guys... Do what we tell them to do. And this is where Jesus begins to get ferocious. The ferocity of his love, the aggressiveness of his love, the directness of his love. And not talking about these stupid lawyers, but instead talking to them in a very direct, very difficult, very aggressive language, which appears in verse 6, where he calls them hypocrites and worshiping in vain. Verse 6, he says, well... Did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? Which is a very difficult thing to say. And Jesus is a couple of feet from these guys when he uses this language. He's very aggressive. You stupid idiots. As it is written, just about you, Isaiah, that you... And these guys would have studied intimately the words of Isaiah. When Jesus quotes here, he's going to quote Isaiah twenty-nine thirteen. And when he does, these silly guys would have known exactly what he was talking about. And Jesus says... What Isaiah was talking about, are you morons? These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Ferocity, ferocious love of Jesus. Because these guys are being mean, are, are being difficult, are, are harming his kids. And he's very aggressive. And he says, in vain do they worship me. They come teaching their doctrines, the commandments of men, as you would have them leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men, In other words, he is attacking them, saying, you leave the word of God and force them to hold to your tradition, to your Mishnah, to your law, elevating your law above God's law. This is the accusation that Mark is making. Basically, the, the simple accusation is your tradition, your Mishnah, your law is higher than Scripture. That's from verses 6 through 8. And then Mark, uh, Jesus makes his case to them. In Mark 7, 9-13, he says this. And he said, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God, that is the Word of God, that is Holy Scripture. You have a fine way of rejecting Holy Scripture in order to establish your set of laws, your tradition. Verse 10, for Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles his father or mother must surely die. Jesus is quoting Exodus twenty twelve. 12 there. Honor your father and mother. And then he quotes Exodus twenty-one seventeen, whoever reviles his father or mother must surely die. And he lays out how they have done this, how holding their commandments, holding the commandments of men above the tradition of men, is what he says, or holding the tradition of men above the commandments of God is what he says in Mark seven eleven. If you say, if a man tells his father and mother whatever you have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, that is given to God. Corbin, let's give a a little bit of background here what Corbin is. Corbin is a vow that's legally made giving material goods to the temple treasury and yet still having personal access to them. It's a religious thing that happens. Uh, A young man who is enthralled by the church, enthralled by God and wants to give his life and service to God, can uh, make this vow of Corbin to, uh, in front of his church, in front of, the, the Jewish nation, and this is a vow. It's very important, very very specific vow that says, basically, everything that comes from me is going to be given to the church treasury. And, and not, if I were to happen to die, all of my money, all of my goods, everything that I have has been bequeathed, has been left to the church, the temple treasury. Um, yet he still has personal access to them as long as he's alive. Now, where this gets important is... Uh, in Numbers, chap- the book of Numbers, chapter thirty, verse one and two, Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of Israel, saying, "This is what the Lord is commandment. In other words, this is the law of God. If a man vows a vow, in our case, he vowed a Corbin vow. If he vows a Corbin vow to the Lord, or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, which is what a, a young man would have done if he had said, if he had done this vow of Corbin. He shall not break his word, he shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Basically, tradition here would not have allowed this man who anyone who, who had the, the Corbin vow would not have allowed him to do anything for his parents in order to keep his vow. It's a fence in order for them to not break this tradition. So the fence they put up around Numbers thirty one and two would violate Exodus twenty twelve and twenty seventeen. A little confusing. Let me read Mark seven twelve and thirteen, and hopefully that brings and sheds some light on it. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and the many things that you do. Here it is laid out simply: if a man comes and makes a Corbin vow, meaning he will not, he will give everything that he has to the church treasury and any of his money will go to the church treasury. The fence that tradition of these lawyers put around this was that nothing that he ever did, he could never serve his parents because that might be considered work and that might be considered giving of who he was and might be considered breaking his vow. So basically, your mom and dad are on their deathbed. You can't serve them in any way because that is giving of who you are and you made a vow to give all of your monetary goods to the church. And so they put this fence around. We're not even going to let you do this for your mother and father for anything, for any reason. You aren't allowed to serve them, which is what verse 13 says. Thus making void the word of God by your tradition, you have handed down by many such things. In other words, in order to hold to this tradition, they would have to break Exodus twenty twelve, which says honor your father and mother. And a result of that, in Exodus 21, 17, means we would have to put you to death. So, you can either hold to the tradition of men, or you can break the commandment of God. And holding them to the tradition of men forces them to leave this commandment of God, thus holding higher the tradition of man over, over Scripture. So, now Jesus comes and he's, he's presented his case, he's made his accusation, and now he's proven to these dumb lawyers that they are wrong, and he turns to his people in verse 14. There's really three groups of people that Jesus will deal with. One is the large group of people, including his disciples, including the people that are following him, and including these lawyers. Now he, he pushes the lawyers out of the conversation. He's talking just to his people when he proclaims the gospel, starting in, in Mark chapter 7, verse 14. And he called the people to him again, and he said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. In other words, I've made this point. I've made my, my accusation. I've made my case. Now pay attention. Here comes the gospel. Here comes the point of what I'm doing. Pay attention. You have to come to grips with this. You have to swallow it all. And here he comes and presents the gospel. He turns it into a gospel presentation. Verse 15. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him... Can defile him, but the thing that comes out of a person are what defile him. In other words, it's not the environment that is bringing condemnation upon you. It's not your environment that brings condemnation upon you, but it is sin in your heart that brings it. You have no ability to clean yourself up. You can't do it. This is not about behavior modification, it's not about self improvement, it's not about law keeping. At the heart of this is the statement, repent and believe the gospel. We've talked about that over and over and over again. The heart of Jesus' message from the very beginning all the time is repent and believe the gospel. And here, these religious leaders, these scribes, these Pharisees, these lawyers are trying to to put this, this Mishnah, this tradition on people as a way of modifying their behavior of Helping them to keep the law. And what Christ is saying here in verse 15, there is nothing outside of you, nothing that you can do. Washing your hands or not washing your hands. Washing these cups or not washing these cups. All of these things, there's nothing that you can do that can change the fact that you are defiled on the inside of you. One of the commentators that I read this week it says this It's not an attack on the Mosaic law on purification which is the whole hand-washing thing that we read about in Exodus chapter 20. It's more specifically, it rather attacks the delusion of sinful men that they can somehow attain true purity. Let me read that again. It rather attacks the delusion of sinful men that they can somehow attain true purity. There's nothing that we can do to attain this purity, and Jesus is attacking that here. Defilement does not come from your environment. It doesn't come from what you have outside of you and put in you. It comes from what is at the core of you. It is all of your efforts to clean up will be vanity since it is the inside of you that defiles you. Move on to verse 17. And when he had entered the house, he left the people and his disciples asked him about the parable. Shifting gears again, he first talking to the three groups of people, the lawyers, the followers and the disciples. And then he says those two quick verses in verses 15 and 16, he says, turns his attention to his followers and then they break up and he gets alone with his disciples in a house. And here we see some of the habits of Jesus, three habits. He's getting alone with his disciples. Second, he's teaching them the gospel through life. And third, and most importantly, and where we'll land mostly, he is proclaiming repent and believe the gospel, habits of Jesus. And this is this this whole message, this whole instance, this whole image of Jesus that Mark is showing us is a is a picture of Christ attacking the religious, and then speaking sort of in a veiled way to his followers, and then pouring deeply and intimately and showing harshly, ferociously the gospel to his select people, very intimate, his his very close people. And that's what he does in these last six verses that we'll look at. And as we go, before we get here, this is the gospel. This is huge. If you've listened to nothing in the first half of this message, listen here, listen now, pay close attention. This is vital, vital for us to understand and come to grips with here. It is... The gospel. It is Jesus' teaching in six verses. Very, very crucial. Very influential. He's turning upside down the religion of the day. And for us, we have to come to grips with this. It turns our world upside down. We're a church that's, that's different. We're a church that, that wants to live in its freedom. Wants to, to embrace its freedom. But here, Jesus is turning things upside down. It's so completely not about freedom. Not about what we act and what we do. He turns to his disciples and says this in verse 18, then are you without understanding? He's not talking about his religious leaders, not talking about the followers, talking about his boys, talking to them. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him? We get caught up and compelled in this verse that it's somehow dealing with our freedoms and we are free to do these things. It has So little to do with our actions. So little to do what's happening outside of us. And so everything to do what's happening on the inside of us. Verse 19. Since it, the defilement, enters into our heart, but not our stomach, is it expelled? Let me read that again. Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. That is what comes on the outside of us. Verse 20. Then he said, what comes out of a person is what... Defiles him. Do you see that? It's what comes out of us that defiles us. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. Come sexual immorality. And these aren't just actions. These are thoughts. Anything that has a birth in us, a desire to commit sexual immorality, is what defiles the core of us. All of us raise our hands for guilt of that. Theft. If there's ever been a desire to want something that you don't have, that you have not been given, that's not yours, that is defilement in your heart. Murder. If there's any sort of hatred, any sort of harsh anger towards someone, there is defilement within you. Adultery. Same thing as sexual immorality. If a married person looks upon another with lust... Adultery has been committed by them. Coveting. That is, someone has something that you want. You covet. There is defilement in your heart. Wickedness. Deceit. We're all filled with deceit. When we get caught doing something, when I get caught doing something, or, or almost, it, it, my immediate reaction is to deceive. There is defilement in my heart. Sensuality. Envy. I am filled with with envy. You are filled with envy. It's all over us. We want what we do not have. Slander. Speaking poorly against someone. Pride. Paying closer attention to ourselves than we do to other people. Pride is simply a lack of, of humility. Hey, pay attention to me. Listen to me. Give to me. That's pride and we're all guilty of it. We're all defiled and foolishness. All these things, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. These are all core sins and they are all in all of us. Here, this is the real teaching of Jesus. It's not about freedom, but it's about our defiled hearts that need to be redeemed. Do you see that? This message of Christ, this vital message of the gospel, the point of Christ's proclamation to this world, the thing that he was always about proclaiming, not just with his words, but with his actions, the way he interacted with people, the way he interacted with Pharisees, the way he interacted with lawyers, the way he interacted with, with people who were uh, neither for him or against him, and his disciples, the way he interacted, the message that he proclaimed was repent. And believe the gospel. And what he's saying in these six verses that is the gospel is this. We are products of our sinful hearts. And not products of our sinful generation. Trust in self and the ability to avoid sin and do right is impossible. Trust of yourself and ability to avoid sin. Ability to practice behavior modification is impossible and that is what these idiot lawyers are about they're about adding to the law of god that you can't keep anyway they're about adding to it and making it more important than the law of god itself and the point and purpose of the law of god in the first place is to show that we can't do it that we have defiled hearts to bring us to an all-accepting all-loving jesus christ get to the heart's of that That is the point of what we're doing. And and here, we, I've talked recently in the last few weeks about repentance and how repentance is something that God has to do in us. We are the passive agent and He is the active agent. Here, this is true repentance. God coming and changing our hearts, connecting us with the defilement of our hearts. And if you don't comprehend the defilement of your hearts, go back after this message tonight and, and look at verses 21 and 22 of Mark 7 and see that it is at the core of you that has defiled you. And nothing outside of you, nothing that you have done or can do is the defiling moment in your life. Instead, it's already there in your heart. True repentance and true life change comes from understanding this stuff. We have to come to grips with our sins. Darren Patrick preached a sermon uh, a month or so ago. In, In it, he's talking about the gospel. And he says this. Why we obey is just as important as that we obey. Do you see that? Listen again. Why we obey is just as important as that we obey. This thought about simply obeying because scripture has told us to or to gain something religiously from God is, is behavior modification or has the ability to, to fall into behavior modification. Let me, let me say that again. I, I stumbled a little bit. The, the heart of this, obeying scripture, obeying the law, can become just behavior modification. But instead, why we obey is equally as important. Let me illustrate this point. I'm really loving the relationship that Hannah Grace, my eight-year-old, and I are, are establishing. She's becoming understanding of Scripture, understanding of the Gospel. And I can have real, meaningful, and deep conversations with her. Just the other day, I don't remember what it was. She did something that was wrong and bad. And so I, I took her into her bedroom and, and, and talked about why it was wrong and why it was bad. And then I, I stopped... And spent more time telling her that I loved her, and there's nothing that she can do to separate herself or or earn or gain my love for her. And it's it was reminded me of of the other night when when we had our uh, baby dedication, and at the end of it, I I I had Kyle and Mandy up there in front of us, and and baby Kinsley, Manny was holding uh, Kinsley, and and she, I, I said. This is the picture of the gospel. So obvious that Kyle is deeply and madly in love with his daughter and his life is about protecting and providing for her. And there's nothing that Kinsley has done to merit or earn or uh, get this love of Kyle and Mandy. All she really did was get born, and that was a, a natural event that happened. Nature allowed Mandy to go into labor, and and she pushed Kinsley out of her womb and into this world. And it was that act of nature that came, this birth of Kinsley, that caused Mandy and Kyle to deeply love this little girl. And I'm talking to Hannah Grace about this and reminded her of, the, of that, and There's nothing that she did besides get born, which was a natural act. She had nothing to do with it, to make me love her. And it's that love, that acceptance of us that we have to connect with. It's that that is the motivation for obedience. Go back and and connect our hearts with, with this defilement thought. In verses 21 and 22, All these things, evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things are the defiling things that are within us. But it is the acceptance and beautiful love of God that has made us able to rise and go to Him. The beautiful acceptance, even when we are defiled, that is the picture of the gospel. And that is why we obey. So why we obey is equally as important as that we obey. And it's it's beautiful. And here, dealing with this, dealing with the inwardness of our deviled hearts leaves us broken. But the beauty of the Gospel is that there is a hero in all of these Old Testament passages that Christ has pointed to. And all these Old Testament passages that these Pharisees and scribes and religious leaders are trying to protect. It's all of these passages have been pointing to this hero of Jesus. And it is him that is here. And it is him that is among us. That is bringing this kingdom of God that has made you clean. Back to our passage in Exodus. There is a basin of bronze that is here to wash our hands and wash our feet so that we can come into the presence of God. Christ has done that. He has sufficiently provided that. And so now we are washed. We are clean. We can enter into the presence of God. And it has everything to do with the gospel. And nothing to do with our behavior modification. Everything to do with what Christ has done for us. And the result of that is that we obey because of this great love that he has provided for us. One last thought. One last point for us when we are honest with ourselves, when we are honest with God, when we see this gospel, when we see verses 21 and 22, when we see that Jesus is the hero that has made us clean, it has to change us. It has to change our disposition. It has to make us aware of our defilement and our cleanliness. We are these things, yet we are accepted. This has to spill over into our relationships see this it's drastically important for our life it's drastically important for us to live a missional life to love people we are a breaking and defiling a perfect and beautiful god who remains steadfast in his acceptance and love of us we are breaking and defiling a perfect and beautiful god Who remains steadfast in His acceptance and love of us. He is unwavering in His actions toward us. He remains. If we swallow the love that is in that, our reaction has to be obedience. This has to spill over into every one of our relationships. We are a breaking people and we have defiled God, but He remains accepting of us. You are a defiling person who is accepted. This has to spill over into a relationship with your children, with your parents, with your spouse, with Your friends with your enemies and with the enemies of your friends, which is a hard one for us to connect with. Listen to this. If you harm me or mess with me, I can deal with that. It's not a big deal. But harm my wife, harm my kids, harm my intimate, close friends, and you're going to have to deal with me. The same premise that has motivated Jesus to come and be ferocious with His love in front of these scribes and these lawyers. They have come and harmed His kids. They have come and changed the Gospel. And Jesus is here ferociously in their face. And He has taken up an offense for His children righteously. And we have this ability to to project onto our the enemies of our friends, this sort of harshness. All of these people, our kids, our parents, our spouse, our friends, our enemies, the enemies of our friends, all of these people are inwardly inwardly defiled and forgiven people. Oh God, that we could connect with that thought and it would change our lives Change the way we view people to understand that we are inwardly defiled people living among inwardly defiled people. And it is by grace and faith alone that God has granted us, given to us, a gift, a grace gift that he has given to us. That we are able to come into his presence and proclaim that we are righteous and forgiven. It's only through God's actions that we can do that. An inwardly defiled and totally forgiven people. This is repentance. This is the gospel. And it is the message of Jesus. Pause and reflect on relationships that are strained in your life. And understand that these are inwardly defiled and forgiven people through the grace of God. Apply this message of Jesus to that.